Amen. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And this morning, our text will be in Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. But uh, for the sake of context, I'm actually going to start reading uh, from verse 10. And uh, let's go ahead and rise one last time in reverence for the reading of God's word. Reading out the ESV. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Please be seated. Here we are, uh, last session, last day of retreat. Uh, but as we start, I actually wanted to jump back and think about something that was said after the first session on the first day of retreat. Uh, if you guys remember uh, Blaze, is that his real name, Blaze? Okay, okay, so Blaze. Is it Blaze like, like a pizza place? That's amazing. Okay, anyway, so Blaze, he, he works here obviously at, at Forest Home. He was giving us some information about the retreat site. And he made a couple announcements about what we should do if an emergency were to occur. And one of the things he said before he started to explain all the different things that we should keep in mind was, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Now, perhaps no one embodies that statement better than firefighters. On average, firefighters have somewhere between 15 to 20 individual pieces of equipment they have to put on at a moment's notice. A helmet, a hood, gloves, a pair of boots, a mask, a flashlight, a radio, an axe, and so much more. And their ability to do their jobs well is entirely dependent on how quickly they can don all of that equipment. A few years ago, there was this um, video that went viral on the internet of a group of Croatian firefighters who were working in the city of Zagreb. I'm actually going to show this video to you because it's the last day of retreat, so why not? Uh, but I'm just going to quickly set up some context before we see it. In this clip, the firefighters are actually watching the World Cup. It was during a critical point in the match where Croatia, their home team, was playing against Russia, and the game was about to go into penalty shootouts. And these firefighters, as you might imagine, are glued to the TV. They're cheering on their national team. When suddenly and unexpectedly, the emergency alarm began to sound. I'm going to roll the clip now. 
Well, as you guys can see, Croatia would eventually go on to win the match. But again, I want you to notice how quickly these men sprang into action. One moment, they're kicking back, they're relaxed, they're rooting on their team. But before they know it, they have to put on all the safety gear and equipment, and they're out the door in a matter of seconds. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Well, in our passage today, we're going to hear that same exact exhortation. God has sounded the alarm bell, so to speak, and he's notified us through his word that there is spiritual warfare taking place all around us. In our pursuit of spiritual formation, we are not exempt from fighting. And neither does our sanctification take place on neutral ground. There is an enemy who is intent on making sure that we do not grow. And therefore, the question is not if we will choose to participate in this war, because all of us are already on the battlefield, whether we realize it or not. Rather, the question is, how ready are we to fight? Are you aware of all the equipment God has given you by his grace? And how quickly are you prepared to don that equipment if and when the occasion calls for you? Again, the Bible makes it clear we are in the midst of war. In fact, over and over again throughout Scripture, the Bible uses military imagery to convey the conflict that's involved in our spiritual formation. Let me just share a couple quick examples. 1 Timothy 1.18. There Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Or in 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now in picturing the Christian life as one of war, the point is not to glamorize or romanticize warfare and violence. Instead, it's all about making us sober and vigilant so we can better understand the seriousness and the gravity of what's at stake if we hope to grow spiritually. See, war may be the only adequate way to convey how intense the struggle is. The struggle between good and evil, between God and the devil, between our flesh and the spirit. And what scripture makes clear is that the Christian life does not unfold on a playground, but on a battleground. And all of us have been called to fight. It's unfortunate then that I think far too many of us live with a peacetime mentality. I think generally speaking for most of us, as we've been talking about throughout this weekend, our main preoccupations in life aren't so much about what roles we occupy on the battlefield or who the enemy is or what weapons we are to wield as we fight. Instead, we're probably most concerned about where we're going to go after this retreat is over, or what we're going to eat for our next meal, or how we're going to spend our next day off. And while none of those things are wrong or sinful in the least, they do reflect how easy it is for us to get distracted and entangled by things that do not ultimately matter, especially during times of war. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I wonder how many of the things that occupy our minds and our hearts even this morning fit that description of civilian pursuits. How many of the plans that we make, the things that we desire, the activities we engage in actually pertain to the war effort? Or do we find ourselves stuck in a peacetime mentality, 
We have a very real enemy, and we are engaged in a very real war. Sure, it might be an invisible war, a cosmic war, a war not with flesh and blood, but it is a real war nevertheless. And if we are caught off guard, it will leave us weak and vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion. But the problem is, Satan seldom comes bearing fangs or showing claws. Instead, he usually comes masquerading as an angel of light. It was Joseph Nye Jr., the former dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, who originally coined the terms hard power and soft power. If you're not familiar with what those terms mean, they essentially describe two different ways countries and governments typically interact with other nations. Of course, everyone is familiar with hard power, even if you've never heard the term before. I want you to think of North Korea, which makes its power known through its vast army, its well-trained military, and constant threats of nuclear attack. That is hard power. Soft power, on the other hand, is something, well, much more soft and friendly. It describes how certain nations and governments seek to influence, not through the use of force primarily, but through attraction and persuasion and ideas. Think of South Korea, which has become a major player in the global scene, not because of its army, but because of its cultural exports, right? Like K-pop and K-drama and Korean food. That is an example of soft power. And I'm bringing up these concepts of hard power and soft power to illustrate some of the main ways that Satan engages in spiritual warfare. As all of us already know, Satan often operates using hard power, meaning he attacks us through things like suffering and illness and disease and trial. But a lot of times, Satan also opposes us through soft power as well, by lulling us to sleep and distracting us with worldly pleasure and preoccupying us with things that are basically of little to no eternal consequence. For example, I want you to consider how in the book of Genesis, Satan came into the garden and he attacked Adam and Eve, not with a gun, not with a sword, but with an idea. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So subtle. And in the same way, you see, each of us are susceptible to these kinds of attacks. Because soft power is so much more subtle than hard power is, it can leave us feeling as if spiritual warfare is not real, especially when our lives are, for the most part, good. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so this is a chapter right after the chapter in which uh, Paul says that we are to behold Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes Satan in the following way. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So if everything that we've talked about over the last couple of days is true, namely that we become what we behold, then one of the primary strategies Satan seeks to employ in undermining our spiritual formation is by blinding us spiritually so we won't behold the glory of Christ. He works hard to get us to behold other things, the things of this world, the cravings of our flesh, 
And it's all because he wants to change and disciple us into his pattern and his likeness rather than the Lord's. The English churchman J.C. Ryle once wrote this. Quote, The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat. They drink. They dress. They work. They amuse themselves. They get money. They spend money. They go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or twice a week, every week. But of the great spiritual warfare, its watchings and strugglings, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests, of all this they appear to know nothing at all. End quote. Gosh. We are in the midst of war, but the sad reality is most of us do not even realize it. So we're not fighting. Instead, we're just kind of sitting there, right? Letting our lives play out week after week with little to no urgency or resolve. But again, hopefully this passage makes it clear. God has enlisted us to fight. So how are we to do this? How are we to fight in the way that God asks us to? Well, first, our passage tells us that we are to stand firm. We're to stand firm. And Paul begins in verse 14 with that command, Stand therefore. It's actually the third time Paul instructs his readers to stand in this section of Ephesians. Four times if you count the word withstand that appears in the verse before. To stand firm against Satan is to resist Satan. It is to refuse to back down or to give into his schemes. Standing basically communicates that we are ready and alert. It demonstrates that we're being watchful and vigilant and it prevents us from being caught out of position. To stand also implies that we are prepared to fight. It's interesting, but did you know there are only two areas of the Christian life where the Bible tells us to flee? It tells us to flee sexual immorality and the love of money. One pastor put it this way, when it comes to monies and honeys, the Bible tells us to run. But for everything else, we have to learn to stand firm because there is no place of escape. And as it turns out, standing is a command that's quite pervasive throughout Scripture. If you take a look at this list on the screen, the Bible tells us to stand in grace, to stand in the gospel, to stand in faith, to stand in freedom, to stand in the Lord, and to stand in the will of God. So you see, it's not just here in Ephesians 6, but over and over again, we see this command to stand throughout God's word. So that's the first thing that we are called to do as soldiers. We are to stand. The second thing this passage instructs us to do is to put on the armor of God. This is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. If you guys have ever studied through this passage before, maybe in an inductive Bible study format or something else, you'll notice that many Bible commentators will point out that Paul wrote this letter while he was still under Roman custody. That's why the book of Ephesians is considered a prison epistle, right? It's because it was written while Paul was detained as a prisoner of Rome. And as Paul was writing this book, a Roman soldier likely stood guard over him, which made it really convenient for Paul to describe all the different spiritual resources God has blessed us with, because all he needed to do was to look in front of him and observe all the equipment of the soldier that was standing there. 
in supplying us with armor, we are reminded that God has not left us defenseless. He does not ask us to pursue spiritual growth unequipped or underdressed. Instead, by enlisting us to fight, God provides us with everything we need so we might better withstand our enemy. Indeed, the Bible says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Sometimes when we're engaged in the battle for spiritual formation, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are powerless and impotent in fighting against sin and Satan. But as it turns out, that kind of defeatist mentality is nothing but lies from the deceiver himself. Because when it comes to pursuing Christ-likeness, we have everything that we need. And as we shall soon see, God's armor is complete armor. It covers us from head to toe so we can stand firm and hold our position against the devil's schemes. So let's take a closer look and see what this armor is all about. First, the belt of truth. Paul begins his teaching on the armor of God by talking about the one thing that supports every other thing that's mentioned in this passage. For a soldier living in the ancient world, a belt was not necessarily designed to protect you like a helmet or a shield, and neither was it meant to help you defend yourself like a sword. Instead, the belt was designed to support everything else around you. The belt that Paul refers to here was essentially a leather apron that would get wrapped around a soldier's waist. And these belts were necessary because ancient soldiers typically wore loose-fitting robes underneath their armor. So by gathering their garments together and tucking them into their belts, these soldiers were able to establish a fuller range of movement that freed them to do what they needed to do. And that's why you see fasting on a belt was so important. It was basically the ancient equivalent of tying your shoes or rolling up your sleeves in that it indicated a readiness to engage in the task at hand. If for whatever reason a soldier was not wearing his belt, he would risk having his garments fly all over the place. And not only would this impede his mobility, it would ultimately hinder him from being effective in combat. According to verse 14, the belt that we are called to wear is the belt of truth. And that's fitting, right? Because without truth, everything else falls apart. Everything starts to unravel. This isn't simply a matter of having good theology or sound doctrine or lots of head knowledge. As great as all those things are, they are ultimately inadequate by themselves because information does not equal transformation. Let me say that again. Information does not equal transformation. And what we're aspiring to and what we're striving after is transformation. For many of us, our problem is not about having enough truth. You guys attend Lighthouse. You guys get to hear truth all the time. No, fastening on the belt of truth is primarily about having a personal conviction that is tied to the truth of God's word. It's about harnessing the power of God's truth and connecting to it in such a way that your life is held together as an integrated whole. Remember that ancient belts were typically worn beneath one's armor, and therefore a belt wasn't even visible from the outside. It was so much more than a fashion statement. And in the same way, truth you see starts with who you are inwardly, at the heart level. 
It's about personal integrity, about being free from hypocrisy and duplicity and falsehood. It's about being the same person Monday through Saturday as you present yourself to be on Sunday. Is your life characterized by that kind of truth? Are you the same person on the inside that you present yourself to be on the outside? Are your public and private personas one and the same? For example, is who you are at church, in your small group, and among your Christian friends, the same person you are at home with your wife and with your kids? Or at work with your manager, with your coworkers? Or is there a disconnect between those two things? For us to be successful in spiritual warfare, we must begin by fasting on the belt of truth and living our lives with integrity, honesty, and conviction. Secondly, we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. A Roman breastplate generally covered both the front and back of the soldier's body. It would start from the neck and extend all the way down to the abdomen, meaning it served to protect all the vital organs. Most, uh, most soldiers who were fighting in battle during these times were likely to suffer injury at some point. It really wasn't a matter of if, but when. So when a soldier got injured, it was preferable that he be wounded in an extremity, like an arm or a hand, rather than in his lungs or in his heart, right? Because you can survive without your arm or without your hand, but you can't survive without your lungs or your heart. So again, the breastplate protected all the critical parts of one's body. Now, when Paul says that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness, we can understand that in a couple of different ways. First, we are to put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. I know this is very basic, but it's important for us to remember this, that Jesus, he earned righteousness for us. He didn't just avoid bad things, right? He did all the right things, too. From the moment he got baptized, at the beginning of his public ministry, to the time he breathed his final breath and yielded up his spirit in submission to the Father, Jesus had his mind set on fulfilling all righteousness. This means he didn't just come to take away our sins. He also came to give us something, to give us his righteousness, all his good works, all his good deeds, merited righteousness on our behalf. Salvation is by works, not our works, but the works of Christ. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, Scripture testifies to the fact that God has imputed to us, through the work of His Son, a perfect righteousness. A righteousness that was earned and secured for us through the unblemished life of the sinless Son of God. So whether you feel like it or not, if you are a Christian this morning, you've had that righteousness granted to you. It covers you. You wear it as a garment, as a cloak, or as a breastplate, as it says here. 
God loves and accepts us not because we are perfect, because Christ is perfect, right? And he's clothed us in his righteousness. And that's so important for us to remember because in our pursuit of spiritual formation, our enemy is going to constantly accuse us and attack us and discourage us. That's what the name Satan means. It means accuser. According to scripture, Satan accuses us day and night before God. So whenever we're feeling down and condemned because we aren't making the kind of progress we would like to in our spiritual formation, we are to remember that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the best defense against Satan's accusations is to remember that we have been justified. We have literally been declared righteous thanks to Jesus' righteousness having been credited to our account. But in addition to Christ's righteousness, putting on the breastplate of righteousness also means that our own lives, our own lives should resemble Christ's righteousness as well. So not only has Christ given us his righteousness, but he's also called us to live righteously. I usually stay away from sports analogies and illustrations because, you know, I have a a mixed gender congregation. But we're at a men's retreat here, so it's, it's good. One of my favorite athletes growing up was Deion Sanders. Right, most of you guys know who Deion is, but if you don't know, Colorado. Yeah, he's, he's, he's on the news a lot these days. Um, back in his playing days, he was both a baseball player and a football player, and he was good at both. In addition to his athletic prowess, Deion Sanders was also known, as many of you guys know, for his tremendous swag. Right, the guy was just the coolest dude around. As my son would say, he had all the drip, right? He looked cool, he, he talked cool, he dressed cool. A reporter once asked Deion Sanders why he paid so much attention to his fashion and the way that he looked. And Deion Sanders responded as only Deion could. When you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you play good. And when you play good, they pay good. (laughs) Then he would flash his million dollar smile. When we put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, we look good. And as a result, God enables us to start developing a righteousness of our own. In putting on the righteousness of Christ, we begin to resemble and imitate the character of Christ. Because again, when you look righteous, you start to feel righteous. And when you feel righteous, you start to act righteous. And that's why it is so critical that we are continually putting on the breastplate of righteousness. So that we can be practically who we already are positionally. Christ has given us his righteousness. And now it is time for us to cultivate a righteousness of our own through our spiritual formation. Thirdly, we are to put on as shoes for our feet the gospel of peace. It was typical for Roman soldiers at this time to wear boots with nails and spikes on the bottom, like cleats, to help them dig their feet into the ground so they would be immovable out on the battlefield. Well, here Paul says that as soldiers of Christ, we are to wear the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet. If we're going to stand, which is what this passage commands us to do, we have to make sure that we're on firm footing, right? This means making the gospel foundational to everything that we say and do. 
It's similar to what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So the gospel is the thing that gives us the ability to stand firm. Additionally, wearing the shoes of the gospel allows us to bring the good news to other people. I don't know about you guys here at Lighthouse, but over at BMC, we have a lot of sneakerheads at our church. I'm not one of them. I don't really care about what my sneakers look like, but uh, you know, I, I, I value sneakers, not for the way they look, but for their utility, right? Because more than anything else, they're designed to protect our feet. And not only that, they also help us move easily from place to place. And in much the same way, just as shoes get us from place to place, we are to adorn our feet with the gospel so that we might move from person to person and act as ambassadors of peace and reconciliation by bringing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to those who so desperately need to hear it. You guys know these passages, Isaiah 52, Romans 10, 15. They say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Are you planted firmly and securely upon the gospel? And are you bringing that gospel to others? Or do you find yourself running away from evangelistic opportunities? We cannot flee from battle. There's nothing more that our enemy wants than to take all our unbelieving family members and friends and to keep them captive and enslaved to their sin. But through the gospel, we have the means to move toward others so they can hear the good news and begin to behold Christ for themselves. Put on then as shoes for your feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Fourthly, we are to take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith. In the Greco-Roman world, there were two types of shields. One was small, the other was much larger. And the specific Greek term that Paul actually uses here in this passage refers to the larger of those two shields. It was actually big enough to cover up one's entire body. Basically, it functioned like a door to hide behind. Needless to say, shields were important in battle because enemy soldiers frequently attacked by shooting darts or arrows at their opponents. It was also common for these arrows to get dipped into some kind of flammable substance, which allowed them to be lit up in flames so they could burn their victims alive. And therefore, soldiers would regularly drench and soak their shields in water to help extinguish those fiery arrows. Now, in terms of what this means for us spiritually, hopefully it's obvious. The fiery arrows should be, uh, are the weapons that Satan uses to attack us. They can include everything that we talked about earlier, from fear to anxiety, to distraction, to pleasure, to temptation, to doubt. Hard power, soft power. It's all fair game to Satan. Whatever might lead us to question God's goodness. And according to this passage, the way we are to extinguish those flaming darts is by taking up the shield of faith. Faith, of course, is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. It is a firm belief and trust that God is good, even when our circumstances are not. It is learning to view our lives and our world through the lens of what we believe rather than simply through what we see. The shield of faith also allows us to stand safely behind everything that we know and believe about God, especially during those periods when we are facing an onslaught from the enemy. 
the other thing that's implicit in this shield analogy, it would have been obvious to Paul's Ephesian readers, maybe not so much to us today, but the shield, it functions best when we're not alone. You see, Roman shields, they were specifically designed to interlock with other shields. So when one soldier linked up their shield with the shields of those around him, individual soldiers could benefit from the collective strength of the whole army. The reality is sometimes our own individual faith is not sufficient to get us through difficult times. And that's why it's so important that we're involved in community, inside the church, so we can derive greater faith by living in fellowship with those around us. Whenever we come together as a body of Christ, we form a wall of protection around each other, which makes us that much more effective in withstanding enemy attack and pursuing spiritual growth. For some of you guys, I'm sure you're currently experiencing a season in your life where Satan has really ramped up his attacks against you. Maybe you're going through a marital conflict or a difficult season at work. Maybe you've lost your job or you're struggling with loneliness or you find yourself wrestling with temptation, with doubt. While you might feel inclined as you're wrestling with these things to isolate yourself, to withdraw and to fend for yourself, that strategy is only going to leave you more vulnerable and susceptible to Satan's attacks. Hopefully, one of the fruits that has come from this extended time together as uh, a retreat is helping us to see that there is strength in numbers, right? That we can protect ourselves by linking up with brothers around us and leaning on the support and strength and encouragement of those that God has supplied for us by his grace. That is how we are to put on the shield of faith. Fifthly, we are to put on the helmet of salvation. What does a helmet protect? Obvious question. Your head, right? Obviously, our heads are where we think. It's where our thoughts and our beliefs reside. I want you to keep in mind that when he was writing to the Ephesians, Paul was writing to a group of people who were already saved. So by telling them to put on the helmet of salvation, he's not asking them to accept the gospel. Rather, he's telling them to have their minds saturated with the gospel. To wear the helmet of salvation is to have God's saving grace cover your thoughts and your tension. It's what Christians mean when we talk about setting our minds on things above. It is to allow the truth of what Christ has done to renew our minds every single day. We cannot expect to constantly fill our minds with the junk of this world and think it's going to protect us from Satan. Instead, we need to do as Scripture commands. Again, Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Or Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need to protect our minds by filling our heads with gospel truth as we put on the helmet of salvation. Lastly and finally, we are to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Typically, a Roman soldier's sword was not very long. It was a, more of a short dagger than anything else, 6 to 18 inches in length. This implies that spiritual warfare generally takes place in close combat, right? Our enemy, he isn't far off, lobbying attacks from a distance. No, he's near. He's fighting up close and personal, and he's seeking to invade every different aspect and dimension of our lives. 
thankfully, as we see here from this passage, God has equipped us with a sword. And according to Paul, as well as other passages like Hebrews chapter 4, that sword is the word of God. It's been pointed out that the sword is the only offensive weapon that is mentioned in this passage, which means that God's word is sufficient. We don't need anything else to attack. But in order for us to wield this sword effectively, we have to have a deep and solid grasp of Scripture. Because what happens when you hand someone a sword or a knife and they don't know how to handle it properly? They hurt themselves or they hurt other people, right? In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So let me ask you guys, are you someone who is capable of handling God's truth rightly? Do you understand the scriptures? Our ability to withstand enemy attack is going to be directly proportionate to our understanding of God's word. In other words, if we want to be successful in standing against Satan, we have to use God's word to fight off his lies. But in order for us to do that effectively, we have to sharpen. We have to improve our understanding of scripture by examining the Bible on a regular, consistent basis. The best example of someone doing this is, of course, Jesus himself. We're not going to look at it too closely because I know that most of you guys are familiar with this story. But in the gospel accounts, Jesus is described as being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Do you guys remember how he fends off enemy attack? By using the word of God. By quoting scripture. First, Satan tells Jesus to satiate his hunger by turning stones into bread. But our Lord responds by quoting from Deuteronomy 8.2. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Satan tells Jesus to throw himself off the top of the temple to prove to everyone that he was the son of God. And Jesus responds by quoting scripture again, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, Satan tells Jesus that in exchange for worshiping him, he would receive all the kingdoms of this world, to which our Lord responds once more by quoting from scripture, this time from Deuteronomy 6.14, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. After which, the gospel accounts say, the devil left him. The devil left him. See, Satan fled because Jesus fended off his attacks by fighting him with the truth of God's word. And in the same way, we are called to wield the sword of the spirit in warding off satanic attack. So that's the armor of God. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of the gospel. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit, which is found in scripture. Friends, the Christian life is one of war. And at any possible moment, we might be called upon to don the armor of God. So are we ready? As we start wrapping up our time together, I think it's perfectly natural to feel, uh, to feel a sense of uh, trepidation, fear, anxiety, worry about everything that we've talked about this weekend because it's daunting, right? Pursuing Christ-likeness, this sounds good. And, you know, when you have like a pithy little saying like, behold Christ, right? It, it seems like something within reach. But then when you kind of take a step back and you realize everything that's, um, that's mounted against you, it can, again, be intimidating and fearful to think about. But again, take heart. Because the armor that you wear is battle-tested. 
because it is nothing less than Christ's armor. I want you to understand this, but over and over again in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, God is pictured as a warrior who fights on behalf of his people. I want to just quote two passages for you guys. Isaiah 11, speaking of God. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Or Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Again, the armor of God is battle-tested. It was worn by Jesus himself when he came to wage war against Satan. It is the things that he donned as he engaged in combat with the enemy. And now by God's grace, that very same armor Jesus wore has now been passed down to us so we too might engage in spiritual warfare as well. So you want to be like Christ? You want to be like Christ after this weekend? And start fighting like Christ. Take up the armor of God. Put on the belt of truth and live your life with integrity and with conviction. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, meaning cover yourself with the righteousness of Christ so that you might live righteously just like he did. Put on as shoes for your feet the gospel of peace and move toward unbelievers in your life with the good news. Take up the shield of faith and in so doing protect yourself and others from the flaming darts of the evil one. Put on the helmet of salvation and set your minds on things above. And finally, wield the sword of the Spirit by mastering your knowledge and understanding of God's Word. Men of Lighthouse, let's stay ready so we don't have to get ready and fight for our spiritual formation each and every day by the grace of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for this weekend and the time that we've had together to fellowship and to sit under the instruction of your word. And we thank you, Lord God, for this battle cry that you issue to us, Lord, through the book of Ephesians. Help us to remember that despite our surroundings, we are in the midst of war. And our enemy attacks us each and every day through a variety of different means in ways that are obvious, in ways that are subtle. So we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to ready ourselves by donning the armor that you have supplied to us by your grace, the armor of Christ who fought on our behalf and who overcame our enemy. Help us, Lord God, to become like him by fighting as he did. I pray for these men as we wrap up the retreat and as we start to head home that you would help for them, Lord God, to establish a mindset and to renew a conviction, Lord God, to pursue spiritual growth with their lives. Would you provide them the means, support, and accountability to do so. And as they bear fruit, Lord God, and begin to change, would you be honored and glorified. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.